So um, as I mentioned, we're, we're in deep here in, the, um, in our series. We're in a series, in a series, in a series. Okay, see if you can keep up. Um, we are here now in Matthew chapter 6, as Cam was so kind to read for us, uh, verses 9 to 13 uh, in the Lord's Prayer. Just want to put this in a little bit of context for us coming out of last week. Uh, we know that last week we talked uh, at, in depth about hypocrisy. And we looked at the passages uh, around the Lord's Prayer here in chapter 6, and we saw that Jesus was giving a call out and a warning to his disciples to watch out for the tendency to veer into hypocrisy when it comes to various spiritual disciplines and how we are living out our lives in terms of giving, praying, and fasting. And we saw that in the passage where Jesus is talking about prayer, he gives a lot of negative examples to give us kind of an idea of, you know, what we should be thinking when we think about prayer. If you look in chapter 6, verses 5 uh, through 8, you'll see Jesus talks about the, the hypocrites, right, that are praying in public to get praise, right? That's a negative example of prayer. Uh, Jesus also talks about those who um, pray just heaping up empty words and phrases, right? Just the volume of words, right? Somehow thinking that the more words that we say, that somehow that pleases God, or words that we just say just in recitation and repetition that, that we're not really keying in on the meaning of that. Jesus calls that out. Again, a negative example of prayer. But then the natural question would arise, right? well, okay, we shouldn't pray like that, and we shouldn't pray like that, and we shouldn't pray like that, then what? How, how should we pray? How should we pray? And Jesus gives us that in verses 9 through 13. He says, pray then like this is how verse 9 begins. And there we have the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer, um, if you think about it, it's the greatest prayer that the church really has. Um, if you look in Scripture, there are a lot of prayers. If you look through all out, throughout the entirety of Scripture, there are prayers all over the place. Uh, but when it comes to the church and how we've kind of viewed it historically, the Lord's Prayer um, for almost centuries now has been viewed as the, the greatest prayer that we have now. And it's been known as the Lord, Lord's Prayer for a very, very long time. And I'm not here to uh, change the name of it. You know, I, I don't want to, bless you, I don't want to get, uh, get into changing the name of it. But I want to offer you maybe a better title for this prayer than the Lord's Prayer. I'm try not trying to get into trouble, but okay. But a better title for this prayer would be the disciples prayer the disciples prayer because that is what it really is if you look at a, at a companion passage for this in the gospel of luke chapter 11 verse 1 you see there that the disciples ask jesus you know teach us how to pray how should we pray 
And we see there the, the Lord's Prayer in a different form over there in Luke chapter 11. We also have it here, and we see that Jesus, in the middle of his sermon, also gives it here as instruction for how to pray. So you have the disciples coming to Jesus saying, teach us to pray. How should we pray? So the disciples have asked for this, and Jesus has given it to them. And if you think about it, it's a prayer that Christ is not praying. It's an important distinction to make, right? As if he even could pray all of it, right? The sinless Christ could never pray this prayer in its entirely. Why? Because of the portion that talks about forgiveness of sins, right? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus couldn't pray that. So it is really the disciples' prayer. And within the prayer, you see these six sort of petitions go up to God. And all of those petitions are, are perfect for us as disciples. So uh, if you look at just kind of a high-level breakdown of what we see in the prayer, the first three requests that go up have to do with God's glory. God's glory. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. But then what happens? The remaining three requests are more about what? Really, our well-being. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. And I think this is not um, unintentional here. The ordering... I think is important here because the ordering gives us a way to understand not just prayer and not just the mechanics of a spiritual discipline, but give us a lens through which we can look at everything because the ordering says what? God first and human second. That's the ideal order of prayer, and it's the ideal order of how we essentially structure our life, structure our thinking, how our feeling and our thinking and our doing, and all of that. It gives us that structure His here. His glory before our wants. And there's an interesting parallel, and you could take a lot of time to compare the Lord's Prayer and the Ten Commandments. There are, there are a lot of um, interactions between the two, but I mean, you could go at great length on it, but high level, you can see that similar pattern there. In the Ten Commandments, the first four have to do with what? God's glory. And the six remaining have to do more with human interaction and human well-being. So this is the way the, the prayer is even structured is part of a larger pattern that is speaking to us on how we should order our prayers, but more than that, how we should order our lives, how we view life, how we look at life. And it's, it's really a, a beautiful prayer. It's, the, it's a, a pattern for followers of Christ. And there's so much we could say about it, which is why we thought it would be beneficial to stop and and. Take a seat right here and delve into uh, the prayer in, in depth.
Because no matter how far you advance in your Christian life, no matter how far you may think you advance in your own prayer, um, this prayer, you're going to come back to it again and again and find richness there for, and direction for how we should pray and how we should live. And yet, if you look throughout all of Christianity and you see how this prayer has been used, uh, many times it's often just memorized, and I, I think it's good we should be memorizing Scripture. It's, it's important, right? So um, that's why, you know, we, we have the kids, you know, focusing on it, and I encourage you to, guys to focus on that as well. But um, in, in large swaths of Christianity, at times the Lord's Prayer is kind of, uh, kind of just repeated and recited, you know, mindlessly rather than genuinely prayed. And that's really ironic because if you look back in the context of where we are in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, Jesus says, when you pray, don't, don't do it, don't just heap up empty phrases. Don't do it with or, you know, meaningless repetition. And the problem for us, I think, right, if, um, you know, there's lots of different contexts we could be coming from. For those of us who have come and have been in church and have been a little familiar with the Lord's Prayer, I think there's kind of an obvious problem for us, that we have sort of a surface familiarity with it, and that might prevent us from seeing the, the, the fullness and the beauty of it. You know, maybe, maybe, you learned, uh, maybe you learned the Lord's Prayer, um, you know, when you were very young, right? Maybe your parents, right, helped you learn it, or, um, you know, you've been reciting it for a long time. You know, or, you know, maybe you even know it now. Maybe you've already committed it to, to memory. But there is a danger in our familiarity with, its, with, with it, right? Because why? It can just become beautiful words we say rather than something that we actually pray. Right? So we say the Lord's Prayer rather than actually what? Praying the Lord's Prayer. Um, this idea of familiarity kind of, you know, impacting our ability to see beauty, I, I can relate to that. I, I, I had two opportunities to go out into the, um, uh, the mountain west, right? So for those of us that are out here on the, on the east coast, right, and people living in, in the Midwest, you know, especially, right, it's flat. Flat is flat can be, right? You go to Oklahoma, it's just flat, right? So those of us out here, when you go out there, I don't know if you've had the opportunity to go out there and see anything like that, right? But I had the chance to see that, take a look at the Canadian Rockies and the U.S. Rockies, and I was just floored, floored. Now, for me, it's something I don't see every day. That's definitely not something I see every day. But I imagine that for the people who live there and have always lived there, um, they might get into a situation where they go, oh, yeah, the mountains, yeah. We, we live here. I drive out of my house, I see it every day. And there's kind of a dulling to the beauty that happens. So for those who have been dulled to beauty, sometimes you need to see things in a new way. 
And when it comes to the Lord's Prayer, maybe we need to see it anew, right? Not, and when I say that, right, I don't mean to say that we're discovering a new truth, but maybe, just maybe, we would see an old truth for what it truly is. So uh, we're going to be here for the next few weeks, um, taking out... Um, the critical phrases and words out of this prayer and delving into what they mean for us uh, as citizens of the kingdom and as children of God. Uh, so I'll give you kind of an overview, and we're going to look at the first word uh, and the first phrase this morning. Uh, but over the next few weeks, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. We're going to think about uh, the Father. We're going to think about His name. What does that mean? We're going to talk about the kingdom. We've been talking about the kingdom, so we, this definitely lines in with that. We're going to talk about um, the will of God. We're going to talk about bread, our daily bread. What does that mean? We're going to talk about forgiveness, and then we're going to talk about temptation. That's where we're headed out over the next few weeks. So I hope that you are uh, excited as I am to spend this time uh, really examining this and, again, helping us to order our prayers, but also helping us to order our life, helping us to order how we see. So we'll begin with, with the first words, our Father in heaven, our Father. So again, when it comes to personally addressing God as Father, that off the bat may not seem out of the ordinary for those of us who maybe grew up in church, have frequented church for any amount of time, who regularly pray or, or are familiar with the Lord's Prayer. But when Jesus says this in the time that he says it, in the context and the culture that he says this, our Father in heaven, it was a revolutionary thing in Jesus' day. See, in the Old Testament, there was this idea of the fatherhood of God, but they saw it mainly in terms of a sovereign creator father. There was a, a kind of a distance that was set apart in that understanding. In fact, if you look in the Old Testament, God is refer, only referred to as Father 14 times. It's 14 times in all of the Old Testament's 39 books. And even when He is referred to as Father, it is somewhat um, impersonal. Those 14 occurrences of Father, uh, that term was always referenced to a nation and not to what? An individual. Go ahead, scan through the Old Testament. You won't find one individual speaking, uh, individual speaking of God as Father. The other thing is in Jesus' day, when you look at the teaching of the time and the theology of the time around when Jesus was preaching and teaching, there was a big focus on the sovereignty of God and the transcendence of God. The transcendence of God meaning that God is not us, that He is above and beyond us. 
not like us, in excess of us. So you see again that even in that time, there was a distance that was kind of set apart with God, a guarded sort of distance. But Jesus comes on the scene, and what does he do? He addresses God only as what? Father. He never uses anything else. That his prayers and petitions that go up address God as Father. If you look in the Gospels, just, just the four, four Gospels, they record uh, Jesus using Father more than some 60 times in reference to God. That's pretty striking. It's so striking that that difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament that many people, uh, scholars look at it and summarize that as one of the key critical differences that you can see in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That no one had ever in the entirety of history of Israel had spoken and prayed like Jesus. No one. But this is actually only part of the story. The word, the actual word that Jesus uses for Father was not so much of a formal word, but it was more of the common Aramaic word with which a child would address his father, the word Abba. Abba. Now think about that word, Abba, as Jesus was using it. We know that that's the word that he would have used regularly to to address his earthly father, Joseph, up until most likely his passing. So everyone in that culture was familiar with that word, used that word. But if you examine it closely, if you look at the literature of that day, if you look at the context and the culture of that time, it was not used of God. Abba, used of God, it was not used in that way. Some will say that Abba, if you really want to put it in its context and understand it, that it's close to the idea of the word dad or, or daddy, um, it's really more of a, there's really more of a reverence and an awe and a wonder built into it as well. There's really more of a reverence to that word. So if you're trying to render it, it's closer to something like dear father, like a, a dearness, a closeness that's being expressed. Dear Father. So now think of the people who are hearing this sermon that Jesus is preaching. Think of how they have used that word, Abba. Think about the context that they've always used it in. Think of their understanding of that. And then now Jesus says this, Our Father in heaven. It would have been striking. Fourteen times in the Old Testament, and it was only ever used as um, God as the corporate father of Israel, never individually or personally. And now, as, as we see that Jesus' disciples are asking him how to pray, he says, begin, you know how you should start? You know how you should begin? Call God your father. 
call God your Abba. It's remarkable. Jesus is sort of authorizing his disciples to kind of repeat the word Abba after him. So he's sort of giving them a share in his sonship. He's empowering his disciples to speak with their heavenly father in, in a sort of familiar, trusting way that a child would with their father. So it can't be understated. Jesus takes this, this idea of the fatherhood of God and brings it down from this sort of lofty theological doctrine down into an intense, practical experience. And he taught his disciples to pray with that same sort of intimacy. And that is what he does for us. Our Father our Abba, our dear Father. This is the foundation. This is the ground of all the awareness that we have in all of our prayers. It should be that God is our Father. So a question for, the, for us this morning, when you think about your awareness of prayer and how you pray and the awareness that you have when you pray, does the awareness of God as your Father undergird or stand underneath your prayers? Is this sense of, of God's sort of intimate fatherhood in your life a profound thing, a growing thing in your life? Because addressing God in that sort of way as Abba, dearest father, right, is not only an, an indication of maybe our, our spiritual health, but it's actually, you could look at it as a mark of kind of the authenticity of our faith. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So this impulse to call on God in this specific type of way is sort of a sign, it's a mark of being God's child. Again, Paul says in Romans 8, 15 and 16, similarly, you received the spirit of sonship and by him we cry what? Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, that true believers are, are compelled to say this. There's an impulse to say this. And the realization of this, this realization is one of the great and really primary works of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Spirit of God makes Christians realize with increasing clarity the meaning of their relationship as sons and daughters of God in Christ. 
He keeps enhancing this spirit of sonship in us. And it's ever sort of integrating in our lives, growing with clarity in our lives, right? Expanding, growing, infiltrating. Again, how we pray and how we think and how we look at things and how we view things and how we understand things as well. So we have a lot of questions, I think, for us to think about. You know? Do you know, God, that God is your Father? When you address Him, do you think of Him that way? Not just a word that you say, but it connects to your understanding of who He is. Dear Father. Now, if it's, if you, it's difficult to answer that question in the affirmative, Right? We have to consider that if He is our spiritual Father, right? And, and the call of Scripture is that we, we need to heed His words of Scripture and come into relationship with Him through Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Yet to all who received Him, Christ, to those who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, the right to become children of God. And really, that grasp of God's fatherhood and the fact that we are sort of adopted into the family of God, it's, it's important to our spiritual life. That really, it kind of frames our understanding of Christianity, that if we truly understand Christianity, then we will have high in our mind that idea, that thought of being God's child and having God as our Father, right? If this, again, if this is not underneath, if this thought is not underneath uh, and, and prompt you and control you in how you worship and how you pray and your whole outlook on life, it, it will definitely mean that your understanding of what Christianity is is, is not quite um, captured the fullness of it. It's this idea, I, I saw it um, as, I was, as I was reading, that Father is the Christian name for God. So that God is our Father, our Abba, is a truth that we must, that we must cultivate, right? It's something that we should cultivate in our own hearts for the sake of our own spiritual growth, for the sake of our own spiritual health. that this child and father understanding, that in a way it brings sort of a wholeness to our spiritual life. How does it do that? First, it brings a sense of being loved. Experientially, you understand that God loves you. Next, how does it do it? it there's a sense of, of God's fatherhood that helps drive home the reality of forgiveness. When you think of, of your sins and you think of the forgiveness of God for you, when I think of that, it is almost hard to even stand the thought and think that how is this even possible? 
But when you ground that in the truth and the understanding of God's fatherhood, that God is my father, it helps drive home the reality of forgiveness, that you are forgiven. It drives it home. I think of the parable of the prodigal son. What, are the first, what is the first word that drips from his lips when he returned home? What was the first word? Father, Father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. And what followed those words? What happened after those words? You know what happened? Forgiveness happened. So the more deep-seated our sense of God's fatherhood, the deeper the sense of our own forgiveness. That there's a wholeness that we have that comes from being loved and being forgiven. And the third thing, right, is that knowing God as Father also brings a sense of um, confidence and security, right, into this wholeness of life. I think, um, you know, anytime you come and you hear of God as Father and and you are a father, right, you start thinking about, you know, your own self, right, and how you you are, right? Um, And and specifically in this (coughs) instance, when thinking about confidence and security, I think about I think about Kinsley, right, my, my daughter, right? So not so much with Silas, he wouldn't do this, but with Kinsley, I will be walking, you know, past the couch, and she might be standing, or you know, oftentimes standing on the couch or sitting on the couch, depending, right? And I'll walk by the couch, and there are times when she will just jump on me, onto my, my, like my back. Like I will just be walking, all of a sudden it'll just be her arms and her neck and she's just, she's just on me. With no warning, with no anything. She'll just do it. It's kind of scary, right? Or I'll be sitting on the edge of her bed doing something, you know, bath time, bedtime kind of thing, and somehow she'll find a way and she'll sneak over to the bed and all of a sudden it's, oh, and, then, and there she is again. It's kind of scary, right? Like, I didn't see her. I didn't, like, I won't, like, feel her coming, and she'll just tackle me and hold on. Now, I, and I, I stop, and I think about that, and I think about what's going on in her, what's going on in her mind when she's doing this. Probably a lot of things, right? But I, I stop to think about it. What's going on in her mind? And I really think she felt and if she jumped in the direction of her father, that, that she would certainly be safe. In her mind, that's the way she sees it. Like, it does not occur to her that I would not catch her. She doesn't process that thought. And, really, that is the way it is with our Abba with our Heavenly Father. He gives us a great sense of security and confidence. And we know that He will not disappoint us. So this idea that God is our Father, our Abba, it's not only a sign of spiritual health and authenticity of our faith, it is 
one of these doctrines that has a healing component to it. If you think about the different contexts that people grow up in, some, um, some grow up with, with, only, with only a mother, right, with no father, for whatever reason, for, for many reasons. Other folks, you know, might grow up in, in a conventional home, but the relationship with their father was, you know, negative at best, and all the other scenarios that you could think of. But whatever our background, whatever context we're coming from, we do long for that relationship with a, a father. And our God wants to provide that. And then some probably just need to bow before God and simply just say, Abba, dear Father, and find sort of a wholeness, a healing that God really wants to give us. So, Jesus starts with our Father, but that's not the whole phrase, right? It is actually what? Our Father... In heaven. So we've seen Jesus' use of the Father, of Abba, it's, it's revolutionary it, for the time. Why? Because Jewish theology stressed what? The transcendence of God, the sovereignty of God. There's a real, and those things are true and good, right? But they, they, they emphasize and they held the God at distance. Now, if we come into today's day and age, Right? So you can go to one of two different poles. One pole is you could, you could stress the sovereignty and trans- transcendence of God all the way out to a point where you wind up in error. If you look at today's day and age, if you look at Christianity today, it seems that maybe um, the problem is the opposite way, that there are swaths of Christianity and Christendom where folks have kind of sentimentalized God's fatherhood so much that it was at the cost of what? His holiness, his perfection, his transcendence. You know, it's just just sort of casual understanding of who God is. You know, the, the big guy upstairs, right? That sort of thinking, this sort of sentimentality, kind of a, just a, a casual familiarity now, on the surface, it looks like if you were to um, put that at the front of, you know, put that at the front of how you, how you talk and how you, uh, people see you, it, it looks on the surface like super intimacy, doesn't it? But really, it, it's actually hiding and kind of covering over kind of a defective understanding of the knowledge of who God is. So you have these sort of two errors that we can go to. If you go too far one down one way or too far down the other way. What's amazing is Jesus' opening line here in the Lord's Prayer gives us the, the, the correction to both of those errors. Our Father in heaven. So Father stresses what? His, his imminence, His nearness, His closeness that he is involved in our lives, that we can intimately approach him as our Abba. But 
in heaven stresses what? God's transcendence, that He's sovereign, that He's reigning, that He surpasses and is above and beyond everything that is human, that He is our Father and He is our King. So we affectionately call Him Abba, dearest Father, but we do it with this deep sense of wonder and reverence and awe. He is our Father, but He exceeds all of the earthly fathers. Earthly Father, right here, right? He exceeds all of the earthly fathers because He is our Father, what? In heaven. He always understands. He is always caring and loving. He never forgets us. He always comes through for us. There is no doubt about our Heavenly Father because He is our Father in heaven. He exceeds all of the earthly fathers a trillion times over. So you can see just in that beginning line, the tenderness and the power that the Lord's Prayer evokes for us just in that first line. One other thing to consider is that first word, because it's important. The prayer actually begins with the word what? Our. Our. Our Father. Now, it's okay. It's beneficial to say, my Father. There's nothing wrong with that. My dear Father. But Jesus here, with purpose and intent, Tent says what? Our. Why? Because he wanted to stress the identity that God's fatherhood brings to us. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, when you think upon the Lord's Prayer, we are affirming that all of us who are Christians are what? Brothers and sisters. It's implicit when we say that. And that if we love God, we will do what? We will love one another. There's no place in God's family for that much glorified idea of individualism. There's no place for it. That glorified individualism that says, I don't need anyone else and they don't need me. Our Father calls us not only what? Upward to God, but calls us what? Outward. Outward to, to minister to our brothers and, and sisters that are around us. The fatherhood of God, it, it enriches us vertically, but also there's a horizontal element to it as well. And it's amazing that Jesus, all of this packed into just this beginning, just the, just the very few words suggesting how we should pray. So as you think about how you should pray, and as we'll, we'll come to a close here shortly, first, what should we, what should we do when you think about praying? First, 
we should approach God with confidence. We should approach Him with confidence. And I want you to hear me this morning. God delights to answer our prayers. That we can and should be confident as we come before Him. Second, when we pray, to pray with simplicity. God's not asking for eloquent prose and rhetoric from his children. Just simple, direct, heartfelt conversation. I mean, you think about when you're a parent and, you know, you, you, you have a child and they're a baby and you're waiting for them to say words. What, what are you waiting for them to say? Mama, Dada. You just, you're just waiting. Yeah, all the other words, they're fine. But what are, you, what are you really actually waiting for, right? You're waiting for that. You long for that. You want them to say it. Sometimes they say Dada first. Doesn't mean they love you more. Don't worry. It's fine. Sometimes they say Mama first. Doesn't mean they love you, right? But you long for that, right? You, and the moment you hear that, think, think. It'd be silly to think that uh, as a child uh, and they're, when they're ready, get, getting ready to say, say, say Dada and Mama that you want them to say it clearly and in, with perfect diction and, and pronounce it so wonderfully and clear. You'll take a blah, and you will take it. You'll take it. So when it comes to our prayers with God, let's, let's make it simple, direct, heartfelt conversation. Let's honor God in our prayers with our simplicity. And last, um, you know, we ought to pray with love. That, that, those words, dearest Father, Abba, it's, those are, that's a word of love. Our prayer should overflow with love. And just one more thing for us to think about that may not be so obvious here, but that this word Father here in the prayer as Jesus presents it, it does bring our focus on our salvation. And I want you to hear me this morning. The first occurrence, the first occurrence in the Hebrew Bible of the idea of God as the Father. Do you know when it comes? When Moses marches boldly to stand before Pharaoh and say what? Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Let my people go that they may serve me. So for Israel to call God Father was them to do what? To hold on to the hope of liberty, of freedom. That those who were slaves in that moment were called to be what? Sons. Sons. When Jesus tells his disciples to call God Father, He wants us to get ready to be free. 
So this word Father, when we say it, when we pray it, when we sing it, it doesn't just uh, contain intimacy and familiarity, but you know what it contains? Hope, salvation. That those who were slaves to sin are called to be sons and daughters of the living God. Thank you, Abba. Thank you, our dear Father. Let's worship the Lord together this morning.